0: Man, it is so good to be together, to lift our voices to the Lord. And I don't know about you, I wasn't ready to preach yet, I just wanted to keep singing. That was, that was so sweet, and I'm really thankful to the Lord that we get to do this every Sunday. It's a, it's a foretaste of heaven, it's a reminder of the blessing it is to be a part of the people of God. And I wonder if you kind of noticed the theme, especially for the, through those first few songs that we sung Uh, They're really heavy, if you didn't catch this, on on the battle imagery, on warfare kind of thinking and theology. And that's because as we go through Joshua, you you can't escape that theme. You can't escape the theme of the battle and of the war, of conquest. And in fact, if you look at all of Scripture, one of the things you see from end to end is is that the story of the Bible is really the story of a great battle. From Genesis to Revelation, we find out that we are in the midst of a cosmic war. Satan and his fallen angels are waging war against God, and by extension, God's people, us, the church. This war, it's long. It's more severe and has greater consequences than any war that's ever been waged in human history. It's a war for eternal glory and honor. It's a war that determines the destiny of every single human soul. It's a war that spans the scope of human history and will last till the day that Jesus returns at the sound of the last trumpet. And we are involved in this war, whether you realize it or not. If you're in Christ this morning, you are called to be a soldier in the Lord's army. You have been given a mission from your commander-in-chief, a mission of global conquest, to take the gospel message to the ends of the earth, to push forward into enemy territory, and to take back what is rightfully the Lord's. You are called to both do this in the rest that is provided by God Himself through the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are called to offer this rest that is found in Jesus Christ to all who will hear. But here's the thing. This battle is hard. It's grueling. There are casualties Sometimes we suffer great loss, not just corporately as a church, but even individually. We experience moments of great defeat. Oftentimes we find ourselves growing tired and weary. Sometimes we feel distracted or even completely disengaged. And so the question that we need to wrestle with in our own hearts is this. If God has called us on mission, a mission of global conquest, spiritually speaking through the gospel, what exactly is going to keep us motivated to keep pressing on? to keep moving forward, to pull us out of our spiritual lethargy, to to pull us away from the distractions that are always vying for our attention and, and keeping us fixated on things that are of lesser importance? What is going to fuel our passion for the gospel and our passion for the glory of God? The answer is found in the next few chapters in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 10 through 12. And the simple answer is this, the fuel, the motivation for the Christian is nothing less than God Himself. God motivates our mission by reminding us that the battle ultimately belongs to Him. That the battle is being waged for His glory, that He is on our side. He is the Almighty King of the universe. He is all we need. So, you see, if we rightly understand who God is, we are equipped and energized for the mission. In these three chapters, we see the truth of God on full display. It's the truth that is intended to motivate our mission. First, I want you to see this. That God is the warrior who wins the battle. He is the warrior who wins the battle. We've sung all about that this morning. And the reason we sing about it, the reason we declare that the battle belongs to the Lord, the reason we declare that the victory is His, is because this is what the scriptures definitively teach us. Chapter 10, this whole chapter is designed to show us one thing that God brings the victory. Yes, God's people fight. Yes, God's people play a part, but make no mistake about it, the victory comes because of the hand of the Lord God. And we find ourselves coming out of chapter 9 into chapter 10 with a a people who are in the land, the Gibeonites. They had made a, a covenant, yes, by deception, but they had made a covenant with the nation of Israel, an alliance of sorts. The surrounding cities and kings have found out about this alliance, and so now they want to wage war against the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites then call upon Israel to fulfill the obligations of the alliance and the covenant that they had made to protect them. That's where we find ourselves in chapter 10. And what we see here is that there is some some strategic moves being made by Israel's army But the emphasis in this very brief account of the battle is on the divine intervention that comes. Look at verse 6, it says, the men of Gibeah sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. There's an alliance of kings who are rallying together in order to attack the Gibeonites. Looking down at verse 9. So, Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. There's the strategy. There's a little bit of a, a surprise attack, wanting to catch them off guard. And then look at verses 10 and 11. This is really, has what we see kind of the, the center point of this chapter. And the Lord threw them, that is the allegiance of kings and their armies, threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth-Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Mechadah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth-Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died." I want you to notice now how the author highlights the key factor for the victory. Look at the last half of verse 11. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Now, don't make any mistake about it. It's not that God just did this apart from Israel. There were clearly supernatural and and divine events that occurred. Those hailstones had nothing to do with Joshua and the army, and God wiped out a huge portion of the army. But I want you to see even how Joshua plays a part in God's decision to destroy these peoples in this way. Look at verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, here's Joshua's prayer, sun stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. Listen to this. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. It's unmistakable who gets the credit for this victory. And this is supposed to be in stark contrast, by the way, to chapter 9, when Israel did not inquire of God, and now what we see is that Joshua speaks directly to the Lord. This is a public prayer. You say, why, why is he praying this in front of the whole nation of Israel? Because he wants them to know where the victory is going to come from. He wants their confidence not to be in their own military strategy, not in the the strength and might of their own army. He wants their confidence to be in the almighty God who is going to put his power on full display. And for all their future history, they would know that their God is a warrior who wins the battle for them. But you want to know what is so incredible in this story? And the author wants to highlight this, by the way, the way that he's framed this. He wants this to leap off the page for us. Look back at verse 14 for a moment. Right in the middle, did you catch what it says? When the Lord heeded the voice of a man. Think about this for a moment. The two miracles that God has already performed as they are beginning this conquest into the land have been God's own initiative. God has parted the Jordan River all on His own, apart from any asking on behalf of God's people. God has allowed the walls of Jericho to come crumbling down. But this Here, this divine act of God was the response of God to one man's petition. With one man's petition, God can make the sun stand still. He can freeze time. This is such a powerful, listen, reminder of how important our prayers are, of how significant our prayers are. The fact that God would hear our petitions, that God would bend His ear to us, that He would not only listen to our prayers, but He would use them in His divine sovereignty and providence to accomplish His perfect plan, His good purposes, is a staggering thought to consider. God, you see, can accomplish more in three seconds of prayer than He can in 300 years of our striving. I, I literally timed out how long it took to read this prayer, and I read it really slowly. So it's like a three second, not even three seconds worth of prayer, and then God, He, he unleashes, he, he stops the sun, he, he holds time in its place, and then what He does is He allows the people of God to finish the mission. E.M. Bounds once said that prayer can do anything that God can do. James says this, that we do not have because we do not ask. Or when we do ask, we ask with selfish motives. We ask for our own glory. We ask for our own pleasures. We're not concerned about God when we ask things from God. We're concerned about us. I want you to see here, though, that God's miracle was done to show his faithfulness to his people. It was to put his power and glory on display. It was to enable his people to advance his mission. And and I just, I want to maybe apply this to your lives in a very direct way. And this has kind of been a theme throughout this morning. I don't know how you walked in here. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know the difficulties in your life. I have no idea for the most part. Some of you, I, I have a bit of an idea, but I know this, if God can hear our prayers and in the moment of one petition, he can cause the sun to stand still, there's nothing our God can't do for his people. I don't, care. I don't care how big you think the obstacle is. I don't care how large the problem you're facing is. I don't care how painful it is. Listen, God is able to meet you in that place, and he is able to provide in abundance. It may not be, listen, it may not be exactly what you want, but it will be exactly what you need. I guarantee you that. And it will, sp- listen, here's the key, though. The key to our going to God and asking of God and petitioning God, it has to be motivated by this primary, primary objective. God, I want my prayer to be all about your glory and your honor, do you see that? I want this to be about you putting your power on display. I don't want this to be about my fame. I don't want this to be about my name. I don't want this to be about my glory. God, I want this to be all about you. And you see, when we have that kind of lens through which we go to God in prayer, here's what happens. He purges out all of the selfish desires that we may have brought to Him. He purges out and He purifies our prayers. He allows us to come to Him with prayers that are in line with His will. By the way, this is exactly how Jesus taught His disciples to pray. You guys know the Lord's Prayer, right? How does it begin? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be Your name. You see what Jesus says? Jesus says, guys, when you start praying, when you come to God in prayer, you want to know what the first things out of your mouth should be? God, I want this to be about your glory. And then notice, notice what follows, you see, because if we're all about God's glory, we're all about God's plan and God's purposes, which is why Jesus can say these words next, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, this is all about the mission advancing. And everything else that follows in the Lord's Prayer, by the way, every bit of provision, every ask for forgiveness, every little bit of protecting from temptation and deliverance from evil, all of this is ultimately all about God's glory and advancing God's mission. You see, when God is providing everything we need, listen, His mission will be accomplished through His people. Again, Ian said it like this. He said, the church upon its knees can bring heaven on earth. By the way, the application for Joshua, look back at verse 8. It says, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Look down at verse 25, and Joshua said to them, he's reiterating God's command to him, do not be afraid or dismayed, be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. You see God God had delivered his enemies into his hand. In fact, in the rest of this chapter, what we see is that Joshua tracks down these five kings who have hid themselves in a cave. He brings them out in a public display of the victory of God. He tells Joshua, Joshua, put your foot upon their neck. He says, see, thus, too, I will do to all of your enemies. And I want you to receive this exhortation from the Word of God. You see, the call for Joshua is the same call to us. We are to fear not. We, the people of God, are to be strong and courageous. Loved ones, there is no place for timid and fearful Christianity We are called to a fearless, bold, triumphant kind of Christianity. Why? Why? Because God is the warrior who wins the battle. And listen, this side of the cross, we have more evidence of that than ever God's people had in the past. We see in the cross of Jesus Christ that the ultimate victory has been won. The cross has disarmed the rulers and powers of this world. Jesus Christ triumphed over the enemy through the cross. This is an encouragement for us to go to God in in bold prayer, to ask big things of a big God who deserves big praise, to the God who has won the battle and who calls us to participate now in advancing His cause, not with a spirit of fear and timidity, but of courage and strength, As somebody once said, he stands best who kneels most. So let me encourage you, as we've already sung, begin to fight on your knees and then stand firm in the strength of his might and press on in obedience and faith on mission, advancing the cause of the gospel. Next, I want you to see this, that God is the sovereign who slays the wicked. This is intended to be a truth that actually motivates Our mission. God is the sovereign king of the universe, and he slays all of his enemies, all of the wicked. The end of chapter 10 demonstrates again God's power over his enemies as Israel continues their conquest into the southern part of Canaan. And then into chapter 11, we have another account of the conquest of the northern parts of Canaan, And I want to pick up reading in verse 4. Look what it says. It says, they came out with all their troops. There's the armies of all gathered against them once again, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. Again, the idea is is that this is is an impossible task, humanly speaking. Look at verse 5. And all these kings, they joined their forces, and they came, and they encamped together at the waters of Merim to fight against Israel." And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as the great Sidon, Look at verse 9, and Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses, and he burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time, and he captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. They struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire and all the cities of those kings, and all their kings, Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Drop down to verse 14, right in the middle. The people of Israel took, for their, um, took their plunder, but every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua. And Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Look in the middle of verse 17. He captured all their kings. He struck them and he put them to death. And just in case you thought this happened overnight, look at verse 18. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. This is such a fascinating statement. Consider this, verse 19. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. And then in one of the the most striking verses of all, the author writes these words in verse 20, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts, that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 23, so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. I mean, it's exhausting just listening to that, isn't it? It's an absolute bloodbath. I mean, this this is full-blown genocide, wiping out of a nation systematically, methodically, and listen, all by the command of God. And you have to see the totality of these chapters speaking to this issue, okay? Five kings already destroyed. In chapter 11, more kings destroyed. In the next chapter, chapter 12, 33 kings are going to be listed as destroyed by Israel. And let's be honest, we we read this, and for hundreds of years, these chapters have caused incredible confusion and consternation in the minds of not just unbelievers, but believers. In fact, many Christians read this, and they're embarrassed by what they read here. They don't know how to think about this or how to explain this, and maybe they try and explain it away as, you know, well, that was the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament was a little bit more harsh. He was a little bit more, you know, judgy. But you you can't say that. You can't go there. Because our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? The God of the New Testament isn't this God of grace where the God of the Old Testament is simply a God of wrath. That's not the way this works. One of the major themes in these chapters is the theme of holy war. And many people have just simply tried to dismiss this, ignore this, or explain it away. But here's the thing you can't escape. You cannot escape God's involvement in this. Even all the way back into chapter 10. It was God who caused the sun to stand still. It was God who threw down great stones upon the people and killed more people than the armies of Israel. It was God who did this. God literally kept the sun up longer so that God's people could continue to slay the wicked. It's a stunning thought. And most staggering of all is what we read in verse 20 of chapter 11. It was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts. In order that they may be devoted to destruction. This is so troubling. So, so here's the question. How do, how do we defend this? How do we think carefully about this? How do we be careful that we don't come along like many have and try to condemn God as guilty of some form of Injustice. You need to understand this is not about God's guilt, but this is instead about God's glory. And I want to just look at two aspects of this to help us understand this better as God's people and and to defend this in in a proper biblical way. The first thing we need to understand about God is this, that God is tremendously patient. I think that's often missed in this section God is tremendously patient. In other words, this is not an example of God being quick to anger. It's, in fact, just the opposite of that. You see, God actually has history with these people called the Canaanites. They they come by a few different names, like the Amorites. There's a vast number of people, and as we see here, different kings and cities in this land. But all of them are, are lumped together. And all the way back in Genesis 15, when God promised Abraham, the the patriarch of the faith, he promised him that he was going to give his people a land, he made it very clear that there was going to be a delay before they entered into the land, four-generation delay. Abraham knew he was never going to see the promised land in that earthly sense in his lifetime. And God was not unclear as to why there was going to be this delay. In fact, in Genesis 15, verse 16, it tells us something interesting. God, speaking to Abraham, says this. He says, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back, speaking of his a people here in the fourth generation here's why listen for the iniquity of the amorites another term for the canaanites is not yet complete their iniquity is not yet complete you say what does that mean you see what's happening is god is letting their sin accumulate he, he's letting them continue to live their lives in total and utter depravity. He's letting their sin accumulate to a point to their, where their wickedness will no longer be tolerated by God. And in fact, God waits, I want you to consider this, God waits 470 years before He ever brings any judgment upon this people. Now, let's put this in perspective. How old is Canada? Anybody got this? Somebody give it to me. Come on. 154. That's right. I had to look it up this morning because I had no idea. <laughs> Put that in perspective. Our country, as a nation, Canada, has been existent in existence for 154 years. These people lived in the land for 470 years. You say, well, what were these people doing all this time? All this time, while God was withholding his wrath, were they repenting? Were they seeking God with humility and a desire to know him and to worship him and follow him? Were they reforming their ways and striving in any way to live decent and noble lives of character and integrity? No. No. You say, how do you know that, Ian? We won't go there, but I would encourage you to write write these chapters down Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. If you go back there, I'll just kind of just summarize this for you, and i not going to be really careful on how I frame this. It's, their wickedness is so depraved. It's so disgusting. I don't even feel comfortable saying it in this kind of company right now. There's way too many kids and parents. I don't want to make your afternoon incredibly difficult explaining things that maybe you're trying not to explain quite yet. But if you go to Leviticus 18, you want to know what Israel is told? When you go into the land, you're not to be like the Egyptians or the Amorites. You're not to be like those people in the land of Canaan. When you enter in, you're supposed to be different from them. And then you want to know what Leviticus 18 goes on to list? All of the gross sexual immorality that characterizes the culture. And it's absolutely despicable. We're talking about every level of incest you can imagine. Even down to incestuous pedophilia. It's disgusting. You think what we see going on in our culture is bad? I promise you, what they were doing, even our culture wouldn't tolerate it. And then you flip over to verse twenty of Leviticus. You want to know what they were doing? The, the kids who survived sexual abuse at the hands of their parents and grandparents are potentially offered up to the god Moloch as a child sacrifice. The wickedness is so gross, it's so rampant, it's so awful. And if you understand what was going on, you know, we read Joshua, and we kind of glance over these pages, and we don't think about what's actually, we just read and we go, how could God do that? But when you understand, when you understand what was going on, honestly, the real question to ask is, how could God not do this? So the only thing God is guilty of in this chapter is tremendous patience. I mean, think about it. We snap, and we, we go into fits of rage, some of us quicker than others, listen, at the drop of a hat over the stupidest, most trivial things. You remember the first year of your marriage? <laughs> remember the kind of stupid things you got angry about? I remember the, the biggest fight my wife and I had in our first year of marriage was whether or not we keep the dish soap above the counter or under the counter. And I was furious because I thought, of course, why would we put it under the counter? We use it all the time. The dish soap is now under the counter. <laughs> <laughs> but li- listen, Don't lose the gravity of this moment. Do do you see my point? We can lose it. We can become so angry at the stupidest things, things that are so irrelevant. We can lack patience with one another and mercy and grace in so many different contexts. I need you to hear Psalm 107, 11 for a moment. You just got to listen to this. You think about how quickly you can fly off the handle or how quickly you can become angry. Listen to this. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. And they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And He delivered them from their distress. People who refuse to bow the knee, they don't deserve mercy or grace. But God is kind to give it. Even more staggering than that, consider Psalm 7. It says this, God is a righteous judge, and a God, listen to this, a God who feels indignation every day. Did you hear that? God is a righteous judge who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, listen to this, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Wow. Can you just note this for a moment? God's heart is indignant towards sin and evil every single day. We watch Netflix for a week and become desensitized. Listen, we watch, we watch shows for a week and become desensitized to adultery and homosexuality and lying and stealing and violence and murder. In the, matter, uh, in the span of a week, we become fully desensitized towards it. Not only that, we're, we're no longer disgusted by it. We're entertained by it. There isn't a shred of desensitization in God not for a moment, not for a second. He feels everything. He feels the indignation of every single sin ever committed by every single individual, and he feels it as a personal offense against him, an assault against his perfect holy character and his glory. 470 years of being provoked while he readies his bow, and all that time he doesn't let it go. His anger burns, yet every day, every day for 470 years, he showers them with his grace. He allows them to live. The rain falls, the crops grow, they laugh, they eat, they drink, they're merry, until just at this moment he lets the bow go. The wick finally burns out. And today, listen, in this room, God is exercising incredible patience. As pornography and abortion and adultery and homosexuality are not only being tolerated but celebrated, it is a miracle the sun comes up every morning. It is a miracle that every heart in this room is still beating right now. That breath you just took, it's a miracle. Christian, if you want something to stir your love for God, I just want to encourage you, rehearse right now, rehearse just in these moments what your life looked like before Jesus Christ saved you. Remember how you rebelled against Him. Remember how you turned away from Him. Remember how you lived in wickedness and depravity and all kinds of sin that you were ashamed of. And at every point, I want you to remember, Christ did not unleash His bow of judgment upon you. At every point, He didn't wipe you out. He exercised incredible patience, and instead of slaughtering us, He came to us, and He kept us alive long enough to hear the glorious news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He kept us alive long enough so that somebody could proclaim the good news to us that we might hear and be convicted of our sin to realize that we are so deserving of His wrath, but God loved us so much that He sent His one and only Son as a perfect substitute. You realize that? That God allowed you to live long enough that you not only know that, you believe that Jesus is your perfect substitute, that He suffered the judgment you deserve, the only one who wasn't worthy of any judgment of all. That He rose victoriously from the grave so that you, listen, you can live triumphantly in Him. He has been tremendously patient with us. Amen, church? Not only that, God is perfectly just. You see, it's one thing to be slow to anger. It's another thing to never be angry. God doesn't wink at sin as if it's no big deal. He doesn't just sweep it under the rug. And God had been provoked long enough. This is not an abrupt act of God. I can't make that any clearer. It's better to wonder why God took so long. It's like the psalmists when they cry out, How long, O oh Lord? How long are you going to endure such injustice? How long are you going to endure the wicked? why, Why can the psalmist say that? Because they are obsessed with the glory of God. God, you don't deserve this. God, this isn't right. God, you deserve honor and praise, and you deserve worship. You don't deserve to be hated and rebelled against. You don't deserve for your creation to turn and shake their fist in your face. In his due time, God brings his perfect justice. You see, your greatest problem, like the Canaanites, isn't that you're a liar or a thief or you're sexually immoral. Your greatest problem is that you don't think God is beautiful. And if you're in here today and you're an unbeliever, you just need to hear this. That that's your, it's not just that you're a bad person. It's not that you've done bad things. The greatest problem you have is you don't believe God is beautiful and God is glorious and that God is worthy of you sets, uh, bending down your knee to him and giving him your entire life in an act of worship. The worst sin of all was that they were not worshiping God. This is the sin at the heart of all sin, according to Romans 1.21. They would not honor God as God, and they would not give thanks to Him. They refused to worship Him. You see, humanity's greatest problem is a worship disorder. And, and you need to hear this. Listen, Jesus is not some accessory you add on to your life to make you feel better about yourself. Jesus isn't something you just kind of tack on your life as a source of self-esteem or a quick fix to your discouragement. Jesus changes the greatest thing that's wrong in your soul. You see, He replaces your idolatrous heart with a new heart that actually loves God, that loves His beauty, that loves His glory, and that longs for it with every fiber of your being. That's what Jesus does. He, he shows us this picture of God as glorious and deserving of worship. He, he, he came right to this earth and he served people and is patient with people and he loves people. Sinners should die for their sin, but Jesus comes and dies for sinners in their place so that we can see God. And if you want to see God, all you have to do is look at Jesus. The gospel shows us that God is perfectly just, that God's wrath must, must fall on someone. The question is, will it fall on you for all eternity, or will it fall upon Jesus at the cross? But I know what you're thinking. How is this fair or just if God is the one who hardened their hearts? This is what it says. And there's a few ways to think about this that we won't go into much detail with, but, but one way is that they, they also harden their own hearts. Like Pharaoh, who hardened his heart against God, you know, the two things go together. We harden our hearts and God hardens our hearts. The second way to look at this is that God is simply giving them over to what they already desire or what they already want. That's Romans 1, right? They, they exchanged the glory of God, the glory of the Creator, for the glory of created things. And they exchanged, they exchanged, they exchanged. So what does God do? He gives them over, He gives them over, He gives them over. And that's absolutely true, but at the end of the day, you can't escape what this passage is saying. God hardened them, and so the question remains, how is this just? And we saw this a few weeks back. Paul tackles this exact question in Romans 9, right? How does he still find fault with people for resisting His will when it's God's doing, essentially? And Paul's short answer, again, let me just kind of reframe it for us. His short answer is this, who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Can the potter say to the clay, why have you made me this way? Who do you think you are to think that God must answer to you as if you were the creator, as if you were the king, and as if you were the judge of the universe? Who do you think you are to, to think that you have figured out the standard of righteousness and justice instead of God? You see, all of us must come to God recognizing that He is the standard of righteousness. God is the sovereign who justly slays the wicked. He is tremendously patient. He is perfectly just. He is not giving to anybody what they do not deserve. And the mystery of God's sovereignty is intended to produce not doubt in his children, but comfort, courage, and confidence. It is intended to be a truth that motivates our mission to know that we have received mercy and that we offer mercy on behalf of God, calling people to be reconciled to God. And the final motivation he gives us is recognizing this, that God is the king who conquers the world. In this book, you see his patience has run out. His justice is being executed. And like I said in chapter 12, we, we won't read it. All you have to know there is that there are 33 kings listed, defeated by both Moses and Joshua. It is demonstrating the power of God and the faithfulness of God. You see, the main point in Joshua is that God is giving His people a land. He's giving His People, the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, it will be a land of of rest, filled with houses they did not build and fields that they did not plow or dig. It's about God's people being in God's place with God's presence. But to do all of this, God has to purge the land of all the evil, of all the sinners and their sin, all these kings destroyed by israel all these conquered kings they point us listen to the promise keeping god what he promised to abraham in genesis 15 god is fulfilling in these moments as abraham believed in romans 4:21, we read that he is able to do what he promised Each conquered king shows the goodness of God that deserves the praise of his people. You say, why did God do all this? It's kind of like what what Paul had said in Romans 9. It's so that we, God's people, might know God's mercy. It's so that we, as God's people, might know the faithfulness of God, and we might know God's great love for us. Listen to Psalm 136, to him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever. What's happening when God advances his kingdom, destroying the wicked and advancing the righteous, is nothing short of God displaying his steadfast love. Every victory, not just the Old Testament, but the New, Every victory of God in your life is God declaring over and over his faithfulness to you. His steadfast love endures forever. God is faithful. And you see, and it's pointing to the, a great fulfillment of the promise that was made to Abraham that the meek shall inherit the earth. God is for the good of his people. God destroys so He can bring about His salvation. But if God is going to bring His people into His place with His presence, He must remove every bit of sin and every bit of unrighteousness that would tempt His people. And God is for His own glory, so He must rid the land of everything that would seek to diminish His glory or steal the worship that is rightly due to His name alone. And by the way, every one of these cities and these kings had ample opportunity to pause and repent, but instead they refused and rebelled. Can I urge you today, if you are not in Christ, do not make this same mistake. Listen, God is merciful and God has patience, but His mercy and patience will not endure forever. All of this All of this conquest, all of this mission advancing, it's a preview of coming attractions, church. More than a preview, it's a pledge. God will wipe out the wicked one day from the world. Think about this. And He will make the entire earth His promised land for His children where righteousness dwells forever. In the book of Revelation, chapter 11, We read some stunning words. It says this, and the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ and He shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces, worshiping God, saying, We give thanks to You, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For You have taken Your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but Your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. You see the truth of God that motivates our mission, church? He is the warrior who wins the battle. He is the sovereign who slays the wicked. He is the king who conquers the world. And we are his army right now, right here, advancing his mission in his glory. What motivates us? It's this, isn't it? No one can stand against our God. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, amen? He cannot be stopped. The battle belongs to the Lord, and so does all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. So, as God's people, let's stand to our feet and let's give Him what He rightly deserves.